Hey there, I'm Pete Townsend, and this is Money Never Sleeps. We look inside the minds of entrepreneurs and at the crossover of startups, enterprise, finance, technology, and life as we know it. This episode of Money Never Sleeps is sponsored by Securicentrics. Securicentrics is a trusted cybersecurity company with offices in Dublin, Cape Town, and London. Securicentrics provides expert advisory services, primarily in the finance and fintech industries, with tailored security solutions to fit your specific needs and regulatory challenges. In this episode, Owen Fitzgerald and I riff on the next edition of the Techstars Web3 Accelerator that I'm running and how it fits together with a New York City bagel. Why Block's goal of making Cash App your primary bank is realistic? The Hall of Fame ranking of fintech and crypto apps? Apple cracking down on NFT functionality? Reddit's success with the thoughtful replacement of, let's face it folks, what is a tech term in NFT or non-fungible token? with the actual usability of the tech as digital collectibles, with Reddit's new profile pick collection. And finally, insights into user adoption of metaverse worlds through the lens of a VR headset. All right here on Money Never Sleeps. Hey Owen. Hey Pete. How's it going? Not too bad, you? Good. Busy day? Yeah. Yeah, kind of busy day. Busy day. Definitely busy day. Lots going on. I was here last week during midterm. The kids were home. Thankfully, my parents were here visiting from the US and looking after the kids. My wife and I were working up a storm. So <laughs> thankfully, they were here for that. But it was awesome. They they got here and arrived at the same time as me flying back from New York last Thursday. Tell us all and, about New York, Pete. And yeah, and they did. Um, they arrived from Boston. So Wonderful, brought them, got them back to the house. But yeah, it was a great trip to New York. The The second most memorable thing was the bagels, right? And the Zucker's smoked fish and bagels, or sorry, Zucker's bagels and smoked fish to say it properly. Wow. I had been the day before I had arrived in New York City. I was trading messages with Matt Guitarelli from Techstar. Shout out to Matt. And he's like, Pete, you know, tomorrow you go for your bagel and your coffee. I'm like, oh, that's right. I'm going to do that. So I went out for a walk at six in the morning, having a chat on FaceTime, not on FaceTime, having a chat on, I think it was WhatsApp video with Hugh McGurr from Techstars and racking up the mobile data charges. And then the whole thing just dropped because I hit the daily limit. And I'm like, all right, I'm done with my walk. There was Zucker's bagels and smoked fish. I go inside order my everything bagel with avocado, smoked salmon, and tomato, and get up to the counter, coffee, water on top of that, boom, $25. Ooh. Yeah. I mean, it must have been some bagel. Presumably, it's well known. It was good, but it was the equivalent of going to like, I don't know, an O'Brien sandwich shop. Oh, really? That was the experience, but the bagel itself was phenomenal. Yeah. Um, but it was the setting that was kind of what you were in. And it's just, it's the price. Things have gone up. Now it's New York City. It was right across from Bryant Park. So, yeah. you know, location. Uh, high rent district. And, but the prices are, are sky high there now. And yeah. even a beer was like at JFK was eleven ninety nine. The little tiny turkey sandwich was 14 uh, That was just in a pre-wrap package and whatever. So, yeah. That, that's inflation American style, right? Yeah. But sure, we're seeing it here with everything. We are. We are. Yeah. Now, I haven't know. paid 25 euro for a bagel, but at the same time. <laughs> yeah, no. And I, the, the thing was, I, I did it again. I went back the next day and got the same one. And it was, it was good. just as good, or nearly yeah. just as good, because you had the initial you know, wow effect from it. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. Uh, But one of the other good things that happened in New York was that 
I got the approval from Techstars to go ahead and launch the Techstars Web3 Accelerator. Excellent. And, yeah. So we're going again. We're doing this one as a Techstars program. And Brilliant. this will bring with it the investment that we had, you know, that you get with any Techstars program up to 120K. But that is obviously the not the big draw. The big draw is that this is a mentorship driven program. And then you get this Techstars for Life advisory role from me and from Hugh McGurr. We're on the hook, yeah. right? So, or not that we're on the hook. It's that we are, this is You're what you know, we want to do. You know, it's the extreme enjoyment of working with early stage founders and the 13 week pro part of the program is just the beginning of the experience. And so, you know, I, I like to, I've come up with my own mnemonic device now on how these accelerators work and it's all about time, T-I-M-E, right? So the T is for team yeah. and that the cohort together of the 12 founding teams and how they all engage together and become their own support group and how the Techstars team and all of the founders engage to got together and the, the types of support that you can provide to a founder just by listening, right. And by helping yep. them through something. And, but also with the connection with the next big part of it, the I is for investors. So being able to bring the network of investors that we have in the web three space to bear for these founders and get them going on their fundraising journey. And it's not just the connection. It's about teaching them how to raise money because not everybody knows how to do that. And there are these lots of little tricks and tips that Techstars have built up over the years that can be incredibly helpful for that. The M is for mentors, which is the most important part of the program, which is exploding the network of founders with over 100 mentors yeah. coming from all different walks of life, Web3 experts, subject matter experts in different functional areas, legal, regulatory business leaders, bringing all that to bear for them. And then the E is for education and putting founders through this educational curriculum that will really make a difference for them. And what we've learned the first time around was that all of those web two native kind of startup 101 type sessions were equally as important as the web three focused ones on things like token lifecycle, tokenomics, building your, building your community, working through different levels of incentivization and how you're going to package all that up together. So really we kicked off applications last week, officially announced it yesterday, really? talking about it here now as well. So a lot more to come over the next few weeks in terms of the media, the video podcasts we'll be doing, the events, the virtual events, Twitter spaces, all that type of stuff. So we'll be announcing all of that on yeah. very simple Twitter address this time around. It's just Techstars Web 3. So that's that's, that's where we're nice. headed. Delighted. Yeah. I know, listen, it was a great program. Obviously, you got to be part of it and see the finished product at the end. So delighted that it's coming back again for another one. Yeah, yeah. And and we're opening it up a bit more this time as well. So the, there's, you know, the, the, the tagline I've been using is builders got to build. And we are in crypto winter right now, right? Love it. Yeah. And builders got to build, right? And with where we are right now in the industry, it's just I feel the rush and the pressure and the momentum of those that are building and those that are true builders rather than those that are just, you know, swinging from their hips and trying to just muscle the ball over the, yeah. over the wall, right? It's, it's difficult. So, cause we did learn so much. We are pushing this out there as that we are working with entrepreneurs building in web three and enabling the next wave of growth in the decentralized internet and in tokenized economies. Those are the two kind of pillars there. 
yeah. the decentralized internet and tokenized economies. And the questions that we're going to be asking founders to be, hey, for example, are you building a company or are you building an economy? If, if you're building a company, how are you supporting those in Web3 that are building an economy? Because that's what this is all about, is that the, these mini economies that you build on blockchain networks that enable you to create this production and consumption on top of your network and what orchestrates that production and consumption is the token. Okay. So, but in the same light, if what you're building, it looks like just a centralized company with a centralized P and L, but you're saying, Oh, I got this token on top of it as well. I'm like, nah, you really need the token. You know, if it's, you know, there are ways to incentivize people that are very web two native that you perhaps don't have to engage yourself in the complexity of Web3 wallets and getting users on board with that. We still have so far to go with how this is all going to play out. So, you know, dropping some of the topics in here as well that are going to be important kind of the next level down. We do see DeFi, NFTs, metaverse, gaming, creator economy propositions, blockchain infrastructure propositions, all playing a big role. But we know there's a lot more taking shape. Interoperability layers are something that I'm really excited about. Investment utilities, harking back to my old days in traditional finance and seeing how people are making it easier for making it easier for investment firms to trade crypto assets and broader digital assets. DAO tooling, decentralized autonomous organizations. I think there's a big step forward that needs to happen there. Digital identity is something I'm really excited about and seeing a lot of things happen and there's just a whole lot more. Yeah. So we we are opening this up and looking beyond everything else, it's all about team. Team, 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 team. It's got to be an awesome team of founders. Yeah. And following that, it's your market and how big of a market are you selling into? And can you create a gap in the market to sell into rather than just trying to sell to an existing market? There are something in the region of between 2.5 million daily active users of Web3 applications or 200 million, depending upon who's counting. Mm. You've got to find a way to make that market bigger, right? Anyway, we're kicking this off. Applications are open now. Those will be open until February 1st, and then we kick off the program in April. And we're going to do the first week in Dublin, and then we'll go remote, and then we're going to meet up in two other cities somewhere in the world that we haven't determined yet that will be really, we're not going to keep them a big secret. It's that we're going to wait for the cohort to unfold and and also the events to unfold for 2023 because, you know, there's no point in meeting up in Paris, for example, in in May, even though it's springtime in Paris is lovely. If there's nothing going on there in terms of Web3 and that we've got three founders in Asia and three on the West Coast of the U.S., Right. So, yeah. you know, we're going to figure this out on, on what the next two cities are after Dublin, what, what that makes sense to do. So anyway, long story short, long story we're short. back You're going again. You're running the back. <laughs> so kicking off, Excellent. kicking it off, kicking it off over the course of the last few weeks, while we've had a few other folks on the show and some awesome guests with Ollie Walsh, with Nigel Verdon, that you and I haven't had the opportunity to do one of these money talk segments in yep. a few weeks. So there's a couple That's of it. stories that I wanted to mention that were probably a couple of weeks old, but were critically important still to where we're going with this stuff that you and I are excited about. But that folks is the sound of FTX. 
We obviously recorded this episode earlier this week before all of the news of FTX broke. We had been a wave of momentum building on it, but unfortunately when Owen and I recorded this, it was not yet top of the list in terms of types of things to talk about uh, for all of our listeners this week. So I'm doing this emergency break-in just to give a quick insight into what's going on with FTX. Over the last number of days, FTX illiquidity issues have come to bear and FTX.com, which is their international business headquartered in Bahamas, which is separate and distinct from FTX in the US. Again, this isn't investment advice, have transparently now finally given some insights as to the problems that they've had uh, over the last number of days. Binance, the big crypto exchange competitor to FTX, have had stepped in and looked at perhaps buying FTX.com, the international business, and after uh, a day of doing due diligence, they decided not to. There have been uh, issues with the FTX token, FTT, and there have also been contagion with, uh, from and with Alameda Research, which is Sam Bankman-Fried's, or SBF as he's known, um, quant trading business that was uh, had a lot of a lot of parallel activities going on between uh, between Alameda and FTX. So without getting into too much of the detail, because Owen and I will definitely dig more into this next week, uh, I just wanted to share some quick insights from the last couple of days at the Token 2049 conference that I was at and around in, uh, in London. And probably one of the best uh, summations of this that I had heard from Brian Elders, who's been on the show before. He's the head of source digital assets. His view was that we've all taken a bath on crypto recently and we're all still in that tub. And now SBF has just turned up and taken a giant proverbial in that tub and left it there floating with us. So that's the reality of it. But stepping back and looking at this from the longer term, what I've been saying to founders is builders got to build. We just got to build better in that a lot of these businesses that we've seen just implode over the last uh, few months, be it Celsius, Three Arrows Capital, Voyager, now FTX.com, that I haven't looked inside their controls and operations, but a number of them don't have either one, the regulatory blood within their businesses and that the regulatory bones and that mindset of compliance, of controls, of certification, of assurance that you would find in regulated financial services business. And these crypto businesses, these centralized businesses are handling billions and billions of people's money. Uh, and whether that money is denominated in fiat currency or that value is denominated in crypto, it's still holding people's assets, uh, not legally in trust, but holding people's assets in a manner that they think is safe. But if you get to the point of someone like FTX, where SBF yesterday on Twitter was saying that one of the main problems was a mislabeling of accounts on whatever control system they used or dashboard that they had set up to look at the liquidity of the exchange on a day-to-day -day basis, that bank accounts were mislabeled. It's like, come on. You know, with billions and billions of assets under control and all the revenue that business was earning, couldn't you have just brought in a big four firm to do some type of audit on a, on the quality controls of the business? 
I've been doing that for years in traditional finance, and I think we got to start doing a lot more of that. Um, SOC 1, SOC 2, even the security and tech-focused ones, more around ISO 27001. We just got to do a lot better. So what I'm saying to folks is, hey, this is a bump, a massive speed bump on the path to the growth of digital assets and of the overall evolution of financial infrastructure as we're headed for virtual societies. Now, I will save that discussion around virtual societies for another day, but all of this stuff is interlinked and it's important that we don't get too over contagious between what had happened with a centralized exchange uh, and their own illiquidity problems, as well as the overall innovation and massive step forward that crypto is enabling us to take. So that's my rant over for the day. Back to the show. I wanted to, to have, you know, you had the first thing that you had in mind that you wanted to talk about this week, didn't you? Yeah, this was so Block or formerly Square did their quarter, third quarter earnings there on Thursday of this week. No, yes, last week because we're only on Wednesday. Not even today's Jesus, it's only Tuesday. I'm all over the place. We'll scrap that bit. So yeah, Block announced, or they were discussing it on their third quarter earnings last week about where they get into a cash app. And it was, Jack Dorsey was asked and he kind of addressed it. He said he, they don't have the data yet, but it looks like their aim is to become the primary bank for their customers. So I mean, they have 49 million active users and 52 billion of inflows, including a huge increase in direct deposits. So they're looking more and more like a bank than the kind of peer-to-peer payment system that they started out as 10 years ago. So I think, you know, I, I doubt this is a shock to anybody, but at the same time, it's interesting to see them coming out and saying, look, that's the goal that they're focused on. So, you know, it's, it's a nice kind of, it's been a really nice consumer point of entry for them, which has allowed them then to leverage that and that user base by rolling out their kind of now pay later as, mm-hmm. you know, as part of their acquisition of Afterpay from last year. And I mean, it's an incredibly profitable business at the moment. It was 774 million in three months to the end of September, 51% up from last year. So it is growing at a considerable rate and obviously gives them the ability then to do a lot more with that. So just really interesting. It's not, it's not often that you would see anyone come out and expressly say their goal is to be a bank, but we've seen it with others. You know, I think it was Lending Club who went off and got their license and how that had served them in terms of reducing the cost of funds. And the kind of wider play that that helped them with. So, yeah, really interesting one. Like we've been a big kind of fan of everything they've been doing at Square or Block for the last number of years, in particular the Cash App. I mean, it's a huge success story. Yeah. To see someone do like a more in-depth piece on that, just that piece in particular. But yeah, really impressive. So it's good, interesting to see that that's what Jack is coming out and saying. Oh, definitely. And my favorite quote from this article on payments.com is people come in for various different reasons and they will find our other services, right? That is just dripping and overflowing with the word flywheel. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's that, and that's the, the Disney flywheel. For example, we talk about it as being, you go see the movie, you get excited about the movie, the characters, you want to be more immersive in that, you go to the theme park. You love the theme park. You want to be able to remember it. You want to have a memento of that. You buy the merch. You get home, you squeeze the merch. You want to then go in and watch a movie again, right? But if you had just just gone into the Disney store and you bought the merch, right? You bought the the super cool new Boba Fett and or a Mandalorian thing. Would that get you to go home and watch the movie? Probably. 
If you started off just as a visitor to a theme park, why don't you buy some merch there? So it's wherever you are on the flywheel, wherever you start, if it's good flywheel, it should naturally take you to the next point. You don't have to start at one single same point all the time. And that's what Block have now done by integrating all these different levers of consumer focused as well as merchant or business focused. Being able to connect businesses to users and users to businesses at any single point that you get onto the block flywheel. And that is what is so cool about this business. I'm signed up now on the wait list for Cash App here in Ireland. Oh, I have not yet been yeah. granted the privilege of jumping into that, but I can't wait because no, I'm I, just very eager to see yeah. what this whole experience and to, to is about. To your point, he talks about how they're building multiple ecosystems to serve different audiences. So Square is for sellers, you know, uh, people using it in a retail point point of sale and then you cash up for consumers you've title for musicians and then tbd for developers and he says he finishes out the kind of quote by saying what makes block unique is their ability to connect all of these together and to your point like it's it's their ability to create an open but yet closed loop kind of ecosystem in the same way <clears throat> you know and we talked about it before when they acquired title as to how that was going to be a real interesting play for them because they were bringing in the musicians and their audiences you know and it's been they've been incredibly successful with their kind of strategy around cash app and making it really kind of popular and kind of getting rappers and music star uh, musicians and actors and everything to sign up to use it and making it a high profile uh, and going down the musician kind of route you know, and it's been very successful in terms of growing their audience and their customer base. But like that, it's their ability to move between the different ecosystems very easily, you know, and have your musicians, you know, and obviously being able to use then Square at the point of sale for anyone. And we, I think we talked about it the last time we were mentioning them, how you can, you know, they're bypassing the banks then by potentially having someone using Square at a point of sale in a, in a shop and using Cash App on their phone or whatever. And at no point do they have to use a bank for any transaction. It's amazing. My, uh, when my mom and dad were over, just like I, I, like I was saying, we were in Dunleary on Sunday at People's Park where they have the food market. And my mom had just figured out Apple Pay, right? And she was delighted. She was like, a, you know, oh my God, it's that easy. I can just, I, I can double click on the side of my iPhone and I can just use Apple yeah, Pay. Yeah. I said, yeah, you can, it's that easy. And now, I think that might've been connected to a, perhaps a bank issued credit card or a financial institution yep. issued credit card, yep. which is fine, but it's still making that user experience as easy as possible. And that's what Cash App had always been focused on. It's even the simplicity yep. of the name, Cash yep. App, right? No frills, just make it simple, make it usable. So it's- No, it's incredibly impressive what they've managed to achieve. And but like that, putting all those pieces together so that they're all interchangeable for the different audiences is yeah. incredibly impressive. So. Yeah, and I, I did see this tweet, and shout out to Simon Taylor, because it was linked in his fintech, is it called fintech brain food? Yep. Fintech brain food newsletter. And that we, it was a, a tweet by Rex Salisbury, who oh, yeah. is the founder and GP at Cambrian VC and an ex-partner at A16Z Fintech. And this was basically a chart of the highest earning finance apps. So, and looking at the ARPU, or the average revenue right. per user. Right. I think it's a yep. funny name. And ranging from peer-to-peer -peer payments BNPL that average about $10 in terms of average revenue per user. So the amount of revenue that you make for each user that is on your platform on average, right? Very simple. To $280 
average revenue per user for neobanks to $850 for crypto exchanges. And he included in that a whole chart from something called Sortlist that was the highest earning finance apps. Cash App was number three, right? And Launched like back in October 2013, yeah. 44 million users, 12.3 billion in revenue for an average revenue per user of about 280 bucks. Yeah. That's pretty damn good. The highest one was FTX with only 1.2 million users and with a revenue per user of 850 dollars on 1 billion in revenue. So I was, you know, messaging back and forth with a guy called Shane Keogh, shout out to Shane from Swissborg Ventures. And he was talking about how Swissborg have 700,000 users already. And I'm like, that is for a kind of a crypto investment management type app. And they're only 500k users away or more than halfway to FTX. Yeah, like that's pretty damn good. And you know, One more quick break in from me. Obviously, we recorded this before the FTX news broke, but some of the comparisons are obviously still pretty salient. Back to the show. But it's it's really about what, you know, I didn't get into the revenue numbers, but that's the driver here. How many users are you bringing on and how much money are you earning off of them? That's It's simple math, right? In order to be these ones like Cash App that have survived since 2013. Yeah. But as well as that, like, because obviously there's 15 there listed in that kind of list. And you have FTX and Binance as the first two, like way ahead of the rest in terms of revenue per users. Binance is nearly 690 and obviously FTX is 850. But Cash App then in third place is, you know, the next closest one to Cash App as a competitor is Sterling at $80 per user, you know, and you know, you've cash up at 280 so a considerable difference because totally. the next the kind of the next even closest one in, in fourth place is robin hood but not a like for like you know cash up and sterling and then you come further down to chime and even revolut down at 24 dollars. like the, what they've done and how they've managed to achieve it is incredibly impressive oh i know and i i did notice sterling bank there as well at number five because that is the one that we've talked about so much that yeah. when i'm having my conversations with people that are outside of the uk and even perhaps even within europe that they're not familiar with sterling because it is just a uk play yeah that's it and having them at number five just really points to how well that the starling team have yeah. done in building that business so you know kudos to them and some of the others, like seeing Revolut down at number 10 and 26 down at number 11, Monzo at 13, again, not surprising. Yeah. They're a UK only play, but haven't jumped as far into the whole lending business and that, that Starling have done. But then Klarna, the, who launched way back in 2005, BNPL, high volume of users with 90 million users, which is second only or third only to PayPal and Coinbase on the list yeah. with their you know, 1.1 billion. They're the lowest with just under $12 in average revenue per user. So yeah. it's, a, it's a nice little kind of FinTech crypto hall of fame list there Yeah, absolutely. Uh, of those top 15. So shout out to Rex Salisbury. Yeah. Thanks for compiling and those look, numbers it's and pushing one, them out it's there. It's one we've been talking about for the last a good while now. So we'll keep obviously updating as we see or keep discussing it. Uh, and I'll see if I can find any more, any deep dives that have been done on it and share it. Be interesting to see. Definitely. And I wonder where Apple might be on this list, right? Because if Apple Pay is a thing, obviously, 
I think I'm not sure if they carve out these numbers. I saw a chart recently that was carving out some of these numbers on at least Apple's services and Apple Pay mm-hmm. was included in that. So the transparency may not be there in terms of what Apple does make off of Apple Pay. I don't know what they make off of Apple Pay and where they might fall in this, but it'd be an interesting one to think about. Oh yeah, probably harder to get the exact numbers at the same time. Yeah. You know, Cash App and the others are very straightforward. You're paying yeah. for the service. You know. Yeah. So in order for a card issuer to have their cards integrated into Apple Pay, I'm sure that card issuer is paying Apple something, right? And I yeah. wonder what the split of the interchange is or however it may work. And I wonder how that might stack up over time. Let me take a minute to tell you more about our sponsors. Securicentrics strives to be the trusted partner that secures your information assets deemed critical for your business. Securicentrics also delivers the highest level of security expertise and support to their clients. Even further, Securicentrics provides independent cybersecurity assessments and advisory against best practice industry standards and compliance frameworks. Working as an extension of your team, Securicentrics helps you recognize and control data risk to your business by understanding your level of risk. In short, Securicentrics provides many solution offerings from assessment and advisory, managed security services, cloud and infrastructure validation, vulnerability management and testing, and payment security. Get in touch with the team at Securicentrics.com to learn more or email info at Securicentrics.com. That's S-E-C-U-R-I-C-E-N-T-R-I-X dot com. Speaking of Apple, Go for it. they have put some restrictions in place around NFTs that are being pointed at and saying, you know, Apple kind of saying to the world, hey, it's not you, it's me. That it's, you know, they what they're doing is that With software updates in iOS 16.1, it introduced new App Store rules that limit features unlocked through NFTs and mandate apps to use Apple's payment method to purchase boosts for posts on social media, right? So the the way the whole App Store works within Apple is that if you want to sell something through or you want your app to be available on the App Store and you want to charge people for that, 30% of whatever your revenue is on that as an app developer goes to Apple, right? That is how the app store works. In-app purchases, it's not as clean cut, but for example, there's a whole classification of things called reader apps. And those are apps where someone initially used to just read a book like on a Kindle and that are now consuming shows on Netflix and on others where I don't think the subscription price of Netflix, for example, if you open that up on the App Store, I don't think any that Apple get any of that, okay? Because that's not that's considered to be a reader app. So what they're saying about NFTs is that, or sorry, what they're saying about digital assets overall is that apps are allowed to list, mint, and transfer and let users view their own NFTs, non-fungible tokens. However, the ownership of NFT shouldn't unlock any more features within the app. Plus, these apps can let users browse other collections, but they shouldn't show external links, buttons, or call to action to purchase NFTs. Users can only purchase NFTs through Apple's in-app payment system. 
Okay, so it's getting quite complicated here. I'm just feeling it's complicated as I'm reading through this text from TechCrunch, their article <laughs> on this going back to the 25th of October. But, you know, the, the TLDR on this is that Apple is basically saying no to NFTs and f- not that they're going to completely restrict them, but that you can only buy them through App Store apps if a portion of the purchase price goes back to Apple, right? Yep. Which just isn't... I'm not saying it's not fair. It's very opportunistic of Apple, but I think the way that things are going, will this mean that Android will just get the bulk of the volume? No, I think Google will end up probably doing the same thing. It's that users will go through different mechanisms in order to, you know, to participate in this world. I think that's the way it's going to happen. So not good for the industry because I think all the reporting was that, oh, Apple just killed NFTs at the time. Yeah, let, let me try to think of a, a, a use case here in an example. So one of the big things we've, we've been talking about, Owen, is gaming and yeah. in-game assets. So if you download a game onto your iPhone and that game gives you the option to, say, buy a new sword for a game, 30% of the purchase price of that, because that is an in-game purchase, that will go to Apple. Okay. And if you are then saying that owning that NFT will allow you to get access to some special content that's coming out from the game publisher, they're saying you can't do that either. You can't create these special links. You can't create these extra rewards because that is in contravention of of App Store rules. So they are placing a lot of barriers around this whole industry now. And I've kind of stepped back and looking at all this from the perspective of What was, for example, back in the 90s, Bill Gates and Microsoft had this vision of the internet that they call the information superhighway. And that was kind of a closed corporate internet. And it didn't work. And we haven't heard much about it. And that the internet obviously became an open thing. Now we've gone a little bit of a different direction with that. But with, you know, the likes of Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Google, Facebook, i.e. Meta, that kind of own the internet today. And it's become very centralized and less open. And with with Web3, the whole idea is open that up and enable ownership at the grassroots level and at the individual level and enable builders to build on top of what other builders are building. And that it's a decentralized internet. And Apple are working against this, in my view. Yeah. Um, so the, the other thing that was interesting that they said about this was that they're also cracking down on cryptocurrency exchanges is it now mandates that you need to have appropriate licensing and permissions to provide a cryptocurrency exchange in all regions they operate in. So they have the power to remove a crypto exchange from a local app store if it deems that the app is illegal for that region. So there's a lot that goes into these types of configuration, shall we call them? And that I think that is something that, you know, a lot of folks need to be keeping a close eye on. It's the usual case of Apple kind of flexing its muscles where it can. Definitely. While while appearing to be, you know, in in that example, just there, they're appearing to be, you know, helping or protecting its consumer by not having any apps that aren't regulated or licensed up there. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, obviously, they can kind of pick and choose who, and what they want to have on it. So. Yep. I, I don't know where they're going to end up with this. The the one, I don't know, saving, not saving grace, but I was thinking about VR today in that I was listening to one of the A16Z Web3 podcasts with 
Punk6529 and Chris Dixon. Punk6529 is anonymous and they used a voice modulator on the podcast. And he is, but very, very, you know, has some excellent views on this whole space. And that he was, he was saying basically, you know, when they, when they moved the conversation from Web3 to VR and to Metaverse, they were talking about, you know, those people that stand up, these prognosticators and say that here is how the world is going to unfold. And here's how VR is going to play such an important role. What this, what Punk does is that he asks them, hey, have you ever had a VR headset on? They're like, no. Well, then I'm not going to listen to you if you've <laughs> ever actually done this. Right. So I'm thinking about what has been my involvement in with VR headsets, which has been very minimal. Right. So I've got to go get one. All yeah. right. And am I going to get the latest, what is it, the Oculus, Oculus. Pro or the no. Meta Pro, the Quest Pro, or am I going to wait for the Apple device to come out? If I'm going to wait for the Apple device to come out, then I'm kind of continuing to buy into this whole Apple ethos and this whole yeah. Apple, this whole Apple view of the world. I think I'm okay with that uh, because I think a lot of these propositions where they're all going to start, as we've talked about this before, is that you start out in these safe zones and are these safe zones like a meta delivered version of a closed metaverse? Maybe that's where this starts. Just like, you know, Bill Gates with his information superhighway. Okay. And we know what came of that. I don't think meta's view will or meta's version of this will last but it's a place for people to start for people to feel safe for people to get their head into this game literally yeah but you could see why like we can we talked about it with meta it makes sense because they're trying to move to the next you know stage and they have that captive audience but apple can do it easier because we're used to buying products and hardware products from apple so apple you know rolling out a vr headset for a particular purpose but people would probably buy it because it fits in with all their other apple stuff that they have and it's seamlessly integrated and you can just turn it on and it works and everything of course more people will do that and the reality is that'll filter down then like you look at all of you look at every smartphone on the market over the last number of years they've ended up just as some copy of what apple has brought out you know so likely you know, Apple rolls out a VR headset next year and then the following year, everyone has some fairly similar version of it. Yeah. So similarly, Metaverse and, and all that will happen, will come from someone like that. I just think that Meta, the Meta Facebook one is, you know, it didn't fit into what they were doing beforehand. So it's a massive leap. You know, whereas yeah, it does. like that. Someone on the gaming side, we've talked about it, where you're already watching a screen and that's that's your what you're doing with that product. Well, then it's not a big leap. Yep. But going from, you know, posting pictures on my Facebook page to then talking to my friends in virtual reality is a, is a huge leap. It is. And no one wants to do it, right? When I was uh, at Elkstone Partners with Andrew Tazali from Philip Lee, Shout out to to both of those organizations, Philip Lee and Elkstone. One of one of the guys from Elkstone said, "So wait, 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 wait. VR like metaverse? Why would I want to have a meeting in VR? I'm like, yeah, I wouldn't want to either. Yeah. It's that the angle this is going to develop from is the angle where people already are in front of screens all the time, which is exactly. like gaming. Yeah. And those that are significantly working way too much and spend too much time." engaging via screens like me, right? (laughs) That when there is a better experience, but I still need to take a break from that. 
So yeah. I'm not going to be immersed in this all the time. Gamers are totally of course. rabid with all this yeah. stuff. And that they will drive the first few incantations of a live 3D version of the internet, which is, again, Matthew Ball's yeah. definition of the metaverse. I, like, which is I think where said. it could, and I don't know how it would work, but, you know, why would you want to create an go online and have an avatar version of yourself? You know, like I find it now because we've gone back hybrid, there's plenty of meetings that I dial into where everyone else is in person and it's clunky. You know, yeah. once people start talking together, you can't, you kind of lose track and they can't hear you then. You have to try to speak over them from the computer. So you could imagine a scenario in the future whereby, you know, you can't make it to something, your one of your family's events over in the US, but they're there in person and you slot on your headset and you're there as an avatar or a hologram or something yeah. that at least people can interact with you and you can interact with them. So you're almost physically there. Yep. You know, I could imagine that scenario or a situation where you want to put yourself like in a physical, almost physical setting. Yeah, that make, that to me would make sense. And I could understand, oh, yeah, that'd be worth doing. Yeah, it does. Like we already have family family gatherings where so-and-so can't make it and that there's a big screen down in the basement of my parents' house and that we put FaceTime up on that. Yeah. yeah. And you, hey, if you, you want to talk to these two family members, go downstairs, you're going to be there, go have a chat. Yeah. And that, yeah, that is just going to move from a flat 2D that will move to a 3D hologram type interaction. Like yeah, be, which, I th- which I think would be cool. Like think I'll of all the weddings up I wouldn't have floor. to go to. Beam me up, Owen. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Mixing cool. up my my stars here between Star Trek yeah, and yeah, Star Wars, yeah. which I, you know, it, that's fine because I, I know where I stand on all those things. So I can mix uh, yeah, them up whenever yeah. I want. Right. But the just two other quick things I wanted to mention. Yeah. One was Reddit defying crypto winter and creating the $10 million market for customizable avatars. Just don't call them NFTs. That was a story that came out on Fortune Crypto on the 3rd of November. Obviously, this has been developing over the last couple of weeks and that Reddit issuing digital collectibles is what they're calling them. And I think that people are kind of panning them a bit and saying, oh, they're NFTs. Why do you call them digital collectibles? Mm -hmm. I'm like, well, NFT is the name of the technology. Digital collectible is the name of the actual utility or the usability or the use case of this. So the best examples of those that are issuing nfts in sports and media they've already started calling them digital collectibles shout out to big fan and kurt Pittman and eugene o'brien went through my first techstars cohort who are working on this and and got their first beta product marketplace up there running in the last month but the the big thing is and this again came from this a16z web3 podcast with punk that the digital collectibles you need to organize people in the physical world. It can't just be, hey, I'm buying this like I'd buy a pack of baseball cards yeah. and that I do nothing else with it. It's a very, very small, small, tiny, tiny market. You've got to create that engagement. You've got to be able to organize people in the physical world with all this. We'll see how Reddit does with, great, they created these digital collectibles. It earned them $10 million. We'll see where it goes. But it's really all about the post-purchase functionality of the digital collectible that is going to make all the difference here and bringing people into in real life experiences, bringing people into metaverse driven experiences at the very beginnings of this Reddit user group with VR headsets in Roblox. Wonderful. Let's do it. I'm up for it. I just need to get that damn VR headset. (laughs) Shout out to anyone who's offering to donate a VR headset to Pete. (laughs) (laughs) I know. I know. We'll get there. We'll get there. My kids may have one before me, but we'll see. Yeah, I know that feeling. All right. Gaming gaming chairs, that's the focus for Christmas this year. 
I know. Gaming I need a gaming. I need a gaming table. Like the we we got my my ten year old for his birthday the steering wheel for yeah. the Xbox. Mine and, is the but, same steering wheel for Mario Kart, but he needs like somewhere to have it set up at all times. Yeah, yeah constantly has to screw down. it on and off. Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> they spell they they sell special tables for that, but they they cost even more than the actual steering wheel itself even as much as a vr headset so okay uh, fair enough (laughs) (laughs) joe i had one last thing i said i'd throw it in i know we talked about flywheels earlier i came across this one and i came across a tweet and i sent myself the tweet and it's since been taken down which is really annoying because it had articulated the entire thing i wanted to tell you in like two tweets so i now have to like piece it together from memory but actually one that i had never thought of and it was harry stebbings from 2020 vc 20 VC now. 20 yeah, VC, 20, yes. The 20 minute VC podcast yes. in the 20 yep. VC VC. Yep. Uh, and it was actually to do with Reese Witherspoon and her Hello Sunshine media brand. So obviously everyone knows, very popular actress. She's very good. But she started out with her book club, built that up to two and a half million members. And what happened then was it became so popular that people were pr- trying to get their books onto their book club list. And her company then on the other side was offering, well, saying, okay, well, we'll include you in our book club list, but we want the rights to produce some of these into TV shows. And in like, what, in 2020, they had, they were nominated for 18 Emmys and they were awarded the most, second most innovative company in media by Fast Company. So out of her book club became obviously the the brand and the the business of producing leading tv shows which then led to them being acquired for 900 million dollars last year wow it's crazy wow yeah, so i didn't, pre- I didn't realize i didn't connect the dots i knew about i'd seen the acquisition because i was like oh it's really impressive and i've watched the shows like little fires every i think little fires everywhere or something which is really good and a few of the shows that they bought that of the books that they've turned into but i hadn't connected the dots on it so incredibly impressive connect yeah. the dots on a flywheel absolutely yeah. absolutely so, not one we hear- think of but a good example very good example. Do you hear here she got stabbed? Reese, what's her name? Reese? Who? The one we were just talking about. Reese, what's her name? With a spoon. No, with a knife. <laughs> I think we have to cut that one piece. Jesus. <laughs> Absolutely not. That's staying in. That's staying in. Conan, keep that in, please. Brilliant. Brilliant. Love it. All Love right. It. I'm a bit cool. slow this morning. <laughs> so we will really leave it there. Yeah, absolutely. On that note. (laughs) All right. Thanks, pal. Good to talk to you, buddy. Adios. That does it for this week, folks. You can learn more about the stories we covered in the show notes on our website, moneyneversleeps.ie. Also, thanks to Conan Brophy from Create Sound for mixing and editing this episode. Conan is an excellent media man to get in touch with when you're thinking about launching your own podcast. As for me, I'm an early stage startup investor focused on where fintech meets crypto and crypto meets Web3. There are plenty of links in the show notes on moneyneversleeps.ie on how to get in touch with us, so don't hesitate to reach out. Finally, till next time, thanks for listening. See ya! Money never sleeps, pal.